Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. At the end of most New Testament letters, there's a final paragraph or a final chapter even that features closing exhortations, personal greetings, and various miscellany. I love how the Tyndale New Testament commentary introduces Paul's concluding chapter in 1 Corinthians 16. It says, In a little chatty section, he gives direction for the collection for the poor, outlines his projected movements, speaks briefly about mutual friends, and brings his letter to a close. Close quote. I'm not sure how I could improve on that. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. In this little paragraph, Paul introduces something that we've come to know as the Jerusalem offering. Based on what we can piece together from various snippets here and in other letters, it seems that Paul was gathering a collection from Gentile churches in Asia Minor, Macedonia, and Greece with the intention of delivering it by means of various delegates and representatives to the church in Jerusalem. The Christians in Jerusalem were struggling in a way that the Christians in Asia Minor and Europe were not. Some of that had to do with the persecution that they were facing from the Jewish authorities, and some of that had to do with the famine that was prophesied by Agabus in Acts 11, 27-30. Their situation may have been further exacerbated by the fact that many new converts, it appears, had basically relocated to Jerusalem so as to be near to the apostles. In Acts 6, for example, we see something of this dilemma as there appears to be a large population of essentially dependent widows. So many, in fact, that an entirely new level of leadership is recruited to oversee their care and provision. So Paul is seeing an opportunity. Leon Morris says here, Paul doubtless felt that a generous response to the need of the poor in that church would strikingly demonstrate the solidarity of the Gentile churches with the mother church and do much to promote unity, closed quote. So what we have here is a special project. Paul is inviting his Gentile churches to participate in a one-time special offering. Now, that isn't to say that this passage can't teach us anything about church giving in general. It can. It just has to be handled carefully. The Pillar New Testament commentary puts it this way. While Paul's guidance here may well be applied to other financial commitments the members of a congregation take on, including commitment to a church's annual budget and other financial needs, it should be noted that Paul is not discussing giving towards a church's regular budget, but the preparations to be taken for one particular and special project, close quote. By the way, as a bit of a sidebar, it is interesting to note as well that Paul says these offerings will be gathered on the first day of the week, verse 2. 
which is just another reminder that very early on, the Lord's Day was distinct from the Jewish Sabbath as the main gathering for Christian worship. Paul is assuming in this passage that the church in Corinth was gathering on Sunday, not Saturday, in commemoration of the resurrection of the Lord. Verse 5, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Paul wanted to enjoy an extended visit with these dear brothers and sisters in Roman Corinth. However, some of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians leads most scholars to conclude that he actually ended up making an unscheduled visit of short duration that did not go very well. It seems that this letter, which we call 1 Corinthians, did not have the desired effect. It did not straighten out that which was getting crooked. So Paul changed his plans and came in person and apparently had to lay down the law. He brought them to the breaking point and then left them to stew, and he wrote to them an ultimatum, a letter that scholars refer to as the severe letter. And thanks be to God, that letter did the trick, and the church submitted to Paul's authority and effected the changes that he had required. Paul then wrote 2 Corinthians, which is more conciliatory in tone. As for verses 8 to 9, these comments refer to Paul's situation in Ephesus at the time of writing. Paul stayed in Ephesus for just over two and a half years, his longest recorded stay anywhere in the New Testament. As he says in verse 9, there was a wide door of opportunity there, as well as many adversaries. You can read about all of that in Acts 19. In fact, just for your own understanding and visualization, this entire letter, 1 Corinthians, could be slipped into the timeline, as it were, right between Acts 18 and Acts 19. In Acts 18, we have the story of Paul's planting the church in Corinth. Then in Acts 19, he is in that wide door of opportunity in Ephesus. And it was there that he was reached by the various messengers and delegates from Corinth who brought the story of the various challenges and concerns that were emerging within that infant congregation. Paul was hesitant to leave the very fruitful work in Ephesus so as to go back and sort out these troubles in Corinth. Things were on fire in Ephesus in a good way. He was preaching daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Acts 19, 10-12 says, This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them Close quote. So the word was going out and God was confirming it by means of powerful signs and wonders. It was electric and fruitful. And as you would imagine, it was not unopposed. The story in Ephesus ends in a riot. The spread of the gospel had disrupted the local economy and Demetrius, the silversmith, organized a protest that shut the entire city down. And it was so violent that Paul's friends and co-workers restrained him from speaking to the crowd. When it was finally over, Paul knew that it was time for him to leave. So he said farewell, and he departed for Macedonia. That is the trip that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 16, 5. 
So sometime before that, he must have quickly set sail from Ephesus to Corinth and then come back again. That's our best reconstruction. Verse 10. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. So again, Paul's original plan was to send Timothy, presumably with this letter in his pocket. And, and, and the plan was for Timothy to read the letter and to sort things out and to get the church in Corinth back on track. As I said already, however, that does not appear to have happened. Timothy was resisted, and he obviously returned to Paul with the news that his counsel had not been well received. And that's why Paul made the quick and severe visit that he did. Verse 12. Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Now, at first glance, in English, that sounds almost like a criticism of Apollos, but it is not. The Greek is less specific than the English here. The ESV has had to make a choice. They could have translated that it was not God's will for him to come. The Greek is literally the will. So we don't know. Was it not Apollos' will or was it not God's will? Paul doesn't specify. He's just saying, I encouraged Apollos to visit you, but it was not the will at this time. It just didn't come together. But he will come when he has opportunity. Verse 13. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. It is common for Paul to end his letters with a variety of commands and imperatives that flow naturally and logically out of whatever points he's been making along the way. Just like pastors today tend to end their sermons with a section or two of application, so it is here. There are actually 12 imperatives, 12 commands in the 24 verses of this last chapter in the letter, and a bunch of them are clustered right here. I slightly prefer the New King James translation of the first part of verse 13. They have it as, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. I think that's slightly better. The word Paul uses there, translated by the ESV as act like men, is the imperative form of andridzomai. It is from the Greek word aner, which means man or male, but the sense is to be courageous. So I don't think this is a call for hyper-masculinity. I think it is a call to Christian conviction and steadfastness. Paul is aware that this church is oversensitive to the pressures and dictates of their culture. We talked about this all the way back in episode one. According to Lyle Vanderbrock, the root problem in this church was that they were trying to be Christians with a minimal amount of social and theological disturbance, closed quote. They wanted to go with the flow. They wanted to go along to get along. And Paul tells them to man up, as it were, or more generically, to be brave. Take a stand here, brothers and sisters. Be strong. Verse 15. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. You will recall that one of the issues in this church was their distorted understanding of human leadership. 
They were worldly, as we've just talked about, and they were worldly in a variety of ways, and one of the ways had to do with the issue of leadership. So here, Paul is pointing them in the direction of some distinctly Christian human leaders. Look at Stephanus. Look at his whole family. That's how you do it. Those are the sorts of people that you should be following. Leadership in the church is about serving the saints. So give recognition to such people. Verse 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. This letter was obviously written prior to the outbreak of COVID-19. Paul wants to see some hugging and kissing in this church. It's hard to be mad at people when you're hugging and kissing. He wants to see the bonds of love and fellowship renewed. Now, as he often does, Paul ends the letter by writing a few lines in his own hand, much like we would print off a letter today and then sign it with pen and ink. Paul dictated his letters through a secretary, as was common practice in those days, but then at the end he would add a short flourish in part to authenticate the letter. What he writes is very interesting. He says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. David Pryor says here, Paul clearly does not mean unbelievers, but those within the church at Corinth who have been causing such chaos to believers and such heartache to the apostle, closed quote. If you don't love Jesus, Paul says, if you aren't willing to submit to him as your Lord and master, then just go. Why are you sticking around in the church causing trouble? That's a good question. I have often wondered why people want to stay in the church but not submit to the word of the Lord. If you want to do sex differently, if you want to believe different things about gender or about sin or about the afterlife or marriage or whatever, then go start your own religion. Why stay in the church of Jesus Christ but refuse to submit to the word of the Lord? doesn't make any sense to me. didn't make any sense to the Apostle Paul either. So he says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That's pretty clear. This, this is the Jesus group here. This is the trembling before the word of God group here. So get on board with that or get out. Even still, come Lord Jesus. That's the meaning of the Aramaic phrase that some versions of the Bible leave untranslated at the end of verse 22. Paul literally says Maranatha. So maybe your Bible translation has that. That's a word that obviously became part of the Christian liturgy. Even in Greek-speaking churches, much like today, even in English churches, we often shout out hallelujah, even though many of us don't know what that means. It means praise the Lord, by the way, so you can say it next time with understanding. In the last two lines of the letter, he prays for them to receive grace from the Lord, without which none of us can grow or change. And then at the very end, he reaffirms his love for them in Christ. Paul has hope that by supplies of grace and through the ordinary means of preaching and personal presence, all of these brothers and sisters, even the ones who are given him grief, can be brought to fullness of faith and maturity in Christ. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. 
If you've appreciated the End of the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 